0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Isn't it? There's so much energy uh, in our kids. Uh, I know for Cara and I, uh, since uh, you know we sort of met, our kids were just past sort of that clubhouse age group. But uh, this year, we've—I don't know why—we got us to up. We only did two in clubhouse, uh, two two little um, times there. But I want to tell you that younger division is so much fun. It's such a blessing to be in with those kids and. And I know that the leaders who are out there, and uh, Nikki, we've thanked you and we've thanked you a couple of times, but uh, the children's ministry is what it is for people because of like you and Richie and the rest of the people out there. It's just incredible. But for those of us that have passed uh, the children's division, I'm glad you're in here with me. Uh, It could have been quite scary if you had all left. Um, But that's okay. You know, as a young boy, I... You know, last week I sort of spent a little bit of time with my uh, dad, dad, who had the big ears. Uh, but I had another grandfather as well, and his, uh, i called him Granddad or grandpa, and uh, he was a Berkeley. I take his name. Uh, my grandma converted him to Adventism to Christianity through the words of, "If we're moving to Kurramong, you need to become an Adventist." <laughs> I really hope the Holy Spirit was working there somewhere, but. Uh, when they moved to Kurramong, my grandma thought, if we move to Kurramong, we'll be okay. Now, they, are, they were country people from down at Yonge, uh, cherry country, just out of Canberra, and born and bred uh, in that area, born on farms, and as they got married, lived in Young, and my grandfather ran a big shop. So he moved to Kurramong and he went through that conversion experience. But my grandfather... Uh, was an incredible old guy. He didn't have the gift of the gab, but what he did was, our old grandson needed to be exercised. And uh, I would take him golfing. Uh, he had some old golf clubs that actually had timber for the shafts. They were that old. I think I, over a period of maybe two or three weeks, I broke all of them, uh, just because I spent a lot of time digging into the dirt. Uh, but with gusto... And he would come with me, he would play tennis with me, Uh, he would play cricket in the backyard, I always batted, he bowled and fielded, I'm not sure he was excited about that. And my grandma, well, what do I say about her? She was one of my best friends and she was an incredible cook and I loved her nutmeat pies, they were delicious. She used all of the ingredients that she used to use in her mince pies <laughs> but when she found Adventism she heard about this glorious product called nut meat. and after that period in time everything had nut meat in it and I didn't mind and um, they, were, they were delicious and I loved hanging out at my grandparents. I'm the first of the latchkey generation which means both of our parents needed to work or they chose to work and I would spend a Probably two or three afternoons a week at their house. They lived right near Dora Creek. I could go fishing. <laughs> I don't know if you'd ever want to eat anything you caught in that creek, but look, you could go fishing. Uh, all of the marmite that came out of the factory made those fish fat, and they were already marinated. I understand, but 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 I'd go fishing and just enjoyed growing up around their house. Now I was lucky enough. Our family lived on the lake, so there was incredible experiences living on the water. But it was fun being at my grandparents' house as well. They taught taught me how to ride bikes, to do jumps, uh, to go and collect shells from out at the lake so they could make shell grit for the chalks. Did heaps of cool things at my grandparents' house. But the one thing I knew about my grandparents is they knew how to work. Even in their retirement, they were not lazy. They didn't sit down and just wait for things to happen. They did. And uh, today... I've actually entitled the sermon, I Love Working. Uh, You know, I know it's grammatically incorrect, but I live in Australia. We like to make things shorter, so I love working. Um, When I think of working, I think of an ad, a commercial that was on TV, and for some of you, you'll remember this, and after our affirmation program last week, there was a lot of ads. Nilo, if you could just play that that ad just nice and quickly... uh, This reminds me of what work is all about. When you think of work, there needs to be some reward, and you know I'm not sure about the men and women of Refresh today, but I'm sure after a hard day's work, you can think of nothing better than coming home and opening a can of Solo, and as as it said, and slamming it down fast. Well, I didn't say it in that one, but eventually they got to slamming it down fast. Well, I used to love those ads because um, they're adventurous, uh, they're a bit silly, a bit quirky, but. It reminded me of when we work, there needs to be some sort of reward. Today, I would actually like to look at a concept that I must admit, even within myself, I have struggled to work through. Because in Christianity, where we are very unique to any other form of religion, in Christianity, we get this thing called salvation. Now, For many people, it's like, whoa, if it's more than four words, that's like, get that word out of my dictionary. But salvation is one of those words that is at the centre of what it means to be a Christian. Because the word salvation means that we are saved through Jesus Christ. Not of our works, but of his actions. You know, as Christians, we should be so glad So, so glad that that is the type of religion that we're in. But there's a problem. Because over the generations, from the Jews, right through to the early Christian believers, right through the Dark Ages, and right through to the Reformation, and right through to today, we, as Christians, have not, well, we haven't altered it, but we've interpreted it differently. And as Adventists, we've done this quite well. And and what we've actually done is we sometimes, we get to the point where it becomes our actions. If you're not good enough, if you haven't, if you don't know enough, if you haven't actually been following the steps that the pastor or the Sabbath school teacher taught us about doing the right things, then you can't be saved. And within Christianity we have actually cheapened what it means to be saved. Today, I want to actually explore with you two stories in the Bible. One about Nicodemus, where he comes to Jesus at night, and he asks him a really good question. Another person in the Bible is called the rich young ruler. We don't know his first name, but we know him as the rich young ruler, or the rich man. And this rich young ruler comes to Jesus. It's not just... It's an incredible story because it's not just in one of the Gospels, it's in a couple of them. We're going to look at Mark today about the rich young ruler and explore this idea of eternal life and what we must do to be saved. And before we do that, I'm going to skip through a few Bible verses with you this morning. So if you've got your Bibles or your phones, grab them. Uh, They will come up on the screen because instead of just stopping and reading and reading, I'll probably be powering through them a little bit. But if there's a few there that really jump out to you, I encourage you to write them down. Because this whole idea of salvation is really important in our Christian walk. It certainly is for me, and I, I really want to express that to you today in today's talk. Why is salvation by works the predominantly held viewpoint in Christianity? The simple answer is that salvation by works seems right in the eyes of men. It just seems to work that if I do A, B, C, and D, the result will be salvation. But what I want to explore with you in these passages this morning is that that is actually a false View of being saved in Jesus. It is actually a false view. Because salvation by works appeals to man's sinful nature. It forms the basis of almost every religion except for biblical Christianity. Let's start with Proverbs chapter 14. I'll give you time to grab it, it's an excellent verse. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. Here it is on the screen. I'm reading today from the new English version, but whatever version you've got, it will actually uh, share the same message. The Bible tells us there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. When I read this, I was like, say what? It tells us there is a way that seems right to men that it ends in death. Well, I want to tell you the one thing about our God is that he wants to lead us into all truth. He actually wants to make sure that our belief system is not based on Pastor Sean. It's not based on what you learn in Bible. It's not based on the best internet preacher that you've ever found. It needs to be based on Scripture. Because when we actually base our faith on Scripture, there is a lot less distractions and distortion that actually heads us away from believing in God. So it actually begins by, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Salvation by work seems right to men. Which is why it is the predominantly held viewpoint even today within biblical Christianity. But true biblical Christianity is so different from other religions. It is the only religion that teaches salvation is gifted by God. And when we read Ephesians chapter 2, and it is one of the best chapters in the Bible, but Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, the Bible actually says to us, God saved you by his what? By his grace. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. When I first discovered this passage, I was about 19. Uh, I was one of those kids that uh, went through Pathfinders, and, and it's good to see Doc Smith and, and, and your wife and your family here with us today, because as a young Pathfinder, I can remember following these guys and Pathfinders up some dirty big hills, and, uh, and uh, I remember you, Doc, you had all these girls from the central coast of New South Wales and somehow you were like the Pathfinder Whisperer. Somehow you would speak the words and in their uh, tiredness, maybe a little bit of whinging, you managed to get them up the hills because we'd go powering past you and go, see ya. Um, but, but I just remember, and, and there are people in our lives who teach us about the way to live in Jesus, about God's grace. Doc Smith, you're one of them. Your wife is one of them. And uh, it's great to have you with us today. Another reason why salvation by works is predominantly held viewpoint is that the natural man does not fully understand the extent of his own selfishness. We sometimes look into our own selves and we actually see that we're doing okay and that we actually can do this on our own and we're actually better. Uh, than what the person sitting next to us is. And it's a big load of rubbish. It's a huge load of rubbish because the Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means each one of us sitting here, none of us can actually say, well, I'm actually at this level. We're not. We're all on the exact same path. It's, it, it's, it's just what it is. For people who actually want to be on the path of works to heaven, working towards perfection and all this sort of stuff, we set ourselves up to fail. We set ourselves up to, be, to feel like we're not good enough and the, the guilt then starts to take over and our religious walk becomes a huge burden. And I've done that. That's been part of my journey. That's exactly what I did for two or three years of my life. Until someone demonstrated it is not by my works, it's by God's actions. It's by the Lord's actions. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. The Bible tells us, have we got that one? Thanks, Neil. Isaiah 6.3. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glories. When we actually look at our walk with God, the place that we need to center it on is not how I'm going. It's not how my family is going. It's not how my church is going. It's based on the fact that we serve an incredible God. And that God, as described by Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. This is an incredible place to actually plant ourselves down and look up and admire whom we actually serve. Holy, holy, holy. Sadly, and I apologise, Neil, because I skipped the first But sadly, in Jeremiah, as it describes chapter 17 and verse 9, when we look at our own hearts, I've had to do this, audit my own heart. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. And who really knows how bad it is? I I read this passage and I think to myself, this is my condition. This is us as human beings. This is our condition. This isn't how God designed us to be. But this is the condition that we have because of sin. This is the condition that we have since Adam and Eve made that choice to take the fruit from the tree. This is the condition that my heart is at when I actually look at it and I actually go, "Man alive!" Does it really need to be that bad? Does it really need to set a picture that's so dark and black and horrible? That's where we begin from. That's where we begin from. And if we believe that we can work our way out of that, we've set ourselves up for failure. And as the sermon was meant to go, the next verse in Isaiah... The only way that we can actually get past that is to actually look through and look up. And then we see the incredible armies of heaven. Then we actually see the incredible holiness of our God. One of the great things that Cara and I do as a family each year, once a year we try to go up to Rainbow Beach, Double Island Point and go camping. And I always hope it's going to be one of those weekends where The moon's not raging because at night we'll often sit there and sort of pull our chairs back and we look up at the stars. You watch a few satellites go zipping past, but you see some, you get to just feel this incredible closeness of our God. And that's the picture that I see when I read the verse that we read before in Isaiah about holy, holy, holy. The thought that man's good works could even balance out his bad works, is totally unbiblical. I just want to repeat that. The thought that man's good works could even balance out his bad works is a totally unbiblical concept. Not only that, but the Bible who, who teaches that God's standard is nothing less than giving our lives 100% to his care. If we stumble in keeping just one part of God's righteous law... We're guilty of breaking them all. It's, it's like this conflict that we're in, that we're deceitful in, and our heart is so bad. And then on the other side, we, we want to achieve that goal of a walk with God and we keep stumbling and, and we can't fully comprehend it. You, you sit down and you go, hey, Sean, this is pretty bad. <laughs> like, this almost seems impossible. It's certainly improbable. But this is where Jesus wants to teach of God, He is. Because in my human logic, whatever I do, I can't be saved. My heart's deceitful and bad. Every time that I want to achieve the best for Him, I keep failing, I stuff it up. Well, then what next? The Bible tells us that this is not about us. This is about God being able to come and actually infuse us with the incredibleness of him. There is simply too many verses in the Bible that teach us that one is not saved by works. For any Christian to believe otherwise, Titus chapter 3, sorry Neil, Titus chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5 is one of those passages. The Bible tells us, but when God our Saviour revealed His kindness and love, He saved us. I want to read that to you again. But when God our Saviour revealed His kindness and love, He saved us. If that's not underlined, please underline it not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. This is one of my favourite verses in scripture. While salvation by works might be the predominantly held view, it is not accurate and it is not biblical. The Bible contains a Abundant evidence of salvation by grace alone. One other verse is found in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, which we read before. We'll read it again just quickly. Because God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so that none of us can boast about it. There are two characters in the Bible and I really enjoy these stories because they were exploring the concept of saying, is it what I need to do to get to heaven? And, and Jesus comes along and says, guys, let me teach you some, some lessons. One of them, sadly, is going to walk away and say, it's too much. This free gift, this salvation that, that you offer, it's too much. The other one is going to accept it. Let's have a look at these two Bible characters. One is found in Mark. This is a good opportunity for all of you to get your phones. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. We're going to read this out. We don't have it up on... I think we've got a couple of the verses on the screen. But we're going to actually read it out and have a look at it. So Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. 14 verses, but an incredibly good story. The first couple of verses is where the question is asked. And we'll read that out together. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Now, we've got a few teachers here. I'm going to guess every now and then one of your students comes and asks an absolute pearler of a question. And you're like, that's a good question. Don't always have the answer to them, but that is a good question. I want to tell you in Scripture, this is one of the best questions that anyone could ever ask Jesus Christ. Don't you reckon? He comes up to Jesus and he said, what must I do to have eternal life? Now today, I want you to listen in. Because we too need to listen to the answer that Jesus gives him. Let's read through it. Uh, The next verse, verse 18. Better find the old goggles. Uh, Verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commands. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat on anyone, honour your mother and your father. Teacher, the man replied. I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man... Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. Verse 22. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How hard is it? for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Many people have often read that little part and gone, what is Jesus talking about? I have never been to Jerusalem, but my understanding is when you go to Jerusalem, the old city, they would actually build these little areas where people could get through, but... For a camel to get through some of these areas, they're like archways, you had to actually get off your camel. And camels were often the trading instruments. You'd have all the goods on the back, you'd have to pull off all of the goods from the camel. And because the camel is tall, you would actually have to get the camel to sort of kneel down, and you would have to pull the camel through those archways, those gates, to actually get them through. So when Jesus refers to it, that's what he's saying. He's not saying, like, this camel's going to go through the eye of the needle. He's actually saying the camel had to actually... You had to do a lot of work to get the camel through. The Bible continues. The disciples were astounded, verse 26. "'Then who in the world can be saved?' they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, "'Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God.' Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, property, for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as much property along with persecution. And in the world that comes that that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Jesus approaches this young man, this rich young ruler, who has an incredible question, what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus goes through a few little works things. Have you done A, B, C and D? Which were the Ten Commandments? And the young man, honestly, actually replies and says, I have, because he had. The Bible actually uses an incredible word. Um, in the Greek, it actually translates to grieve. Because when this young man decides that giving up his possessions was too much, Jesus, and it's only twice in the whole of the Scriptures that Jesus is translated using this word, to grieve. And in the only other time we find it is when Jesus was at Gethsemane. And he was contemplating, talking to his father in heaven and actually saying, Is this going, is my sacrifice going to be enough? And in that conversation with his father, he uses the same word to grieve. So when we actually look at this story, we know that Jesus didn't see him as another young guy that just came along his pathway. Jesus actually saw genuineness in this young man. He actually saw incredible potential. He actually thought to himself, this could be an incredible disciple for me. Go and make disciples in the world. Absolutely, he could have done that. But he looked, he did an audit of his own life and he said, I've actually done all right. I've made some smart choices. I've made a lot of money. And Jesus wants me to give it all up to follow him so that I can have eternal life one day. It's too much. So Jesus grieves because he saw something incredibly, incredible amount of potential in this young man, and he walks away and he leaves. You can see why the disciples who'd looked at this young man and thought this guy's incredible. You can see why they came back to Jesus and said, "Well, then, how can any of us be saved? He's doing all these things. How can any of us be saved?" There's another divine appointment, and it's found in John 13. And in John 13, we have one of the religious leaders, one of the educated, one of the lecturers, who taught Bible to the Jews, comes to Jesus at night. Why would he come at night? Why wouldn't he come in the middle of the day? Why wouldn't he come maybe at the beginning of the day when Jesus was at his freshest? When he was at his freshest, why would he choose to come at night? The Bible tells us John 3. If you've got, if you've got those phones of your Bibles, good opportunity to grab it. There is a question that is asked again, just like we found with the rich young men. But it's a different question. In here in John 3, verses 1 and 2, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In verse 3, which we don't have on the screen, but you have in front of you, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. This is one of the first times in Scripture that we have this concept. Jesus will expand upon it hugely in John 13, 14, 15, where the Holy Spirit is promised to the new church. But this is what Jesus replies to Nicodemus. It's really, really interesting. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God what the heck is Jesus talking about? That's exactly what Nicodemus was like. I've read all the books. I've hung out and talked about Bible and Scripture all my life. <laughs> I've never heard this concept. And in verse 4, he says, what do you mean? What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go into his mother's womb and be born again? I don't think Jesus was being literal. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. You must be born again. The Bible tells us in the next chapter of John about a woman who comes to a well. And in like the quickest 60 seconds ever, the woman is a Samaritan. She's a sinful lady. She's got like five husbands previous and she's got another bloke that she's with. The community hater. Uh, she goes on her own. She gets down there and Jesus sends his disciples away because being typical men, they were hungry. Off they went. But Jesus knew he had a divine appointment with this woman. And he chats to her. They, they, she, she gets some water for him. They talk about religion. Jesus talks about her She doesn't like the answers that Jesus is revealing to her. Uh, She's like, who are you? (laughs) And in Scripture, Jesus actually promises something very similar to that he promises Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. Because in chapter 4, it's not just being born again. Jesus says to this woman, you come to collect water, but I can offer you living water. Some of these concepts that are coming through the book of John are blowing These modern Jewish people out of their chairs because they have had this view that if you do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that you can be saved. And Jesus is coming along and says, you must be born again. You need to be radical. It's not about just having your A, B, C, D ticked off. You need to actually get to the point in your own life where your priority is Jesus and Jesus alone. And now Jesus promises this living water and there are just concepts going on that are lessons for each one of us today in 2021. I just want to repeat verse 5. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and being born of the Spirit. I, I have sat down with people and they've said to me, Pastor... I need to be baptised, otherwise I can't be saved. That's not what it's talking about. This idea of being born of the water and born of the Spirit is actually something that happens spiritually between you and God. Of that internal wrestling and relationship that you actually have with God. Being baptised does not assure you that you are going to be saved. That's a Catholic doctrine that has been filtering through our world for over a thousand years. It's, It's not biblical. Because the Bible says here, unless you were born of the Spirit and of water, this is a concept that the Jewish people, when Jesus was walking around, they didn't comprehend. Because that's why Jesus promised them, when I go, I will leave you a comforter. I'll lead someone to lead you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will be given to you. That's why in John, chapter four, 13, 14, and 15, it is so significant to our walk as Christians, because it promises us that in the walk that we live today, it is God that will lead us. It is God that will actually give us the spiritual nurture for us to be able to get through our daily lives. And a God bless someday when he returns. We will be known not by what we do, but by who we know. Not by what we do, but who we know. The rich young ruler and Nicodemus were so similar. They had knowledge about the scripture, they were well respected. Both came to Jesus because something was missing in their lives. It wasn't just missing from their brain, it was missing in their lives. Both were directed by Jesus to explore their own spiritual needs. The rich young ruler has done it all right. Even Jesus confirms that in Mark 10 verse 21. But still he senses something is lacking So he goes to Jesus to help him to see what is lacking. If you ever get a chance, Tim Keller uh, is one one of the best writers on a lot of the different parables and stories in Scripture. And he's written a book and it is called Jesus the King. And in Jesus the King, he describes the rich young ruler. Of course he was missing something because anyone who counts on what they're doing to get eternal life... We'll find that. In spite of everything they've accomplished, there's still an emptiness, an insecurity, a doubt. Something is bound to be missing. How can anyone ever know whether they are good enough? These are Tim Keller's words. The rich young ruler thought he had it all. He'd worked hard. He had a lot of money. He's kept all of God's laws faithfully. In essence, what he's doing is trying to earn his way to heaven. Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, you have put your faith and your trust in wealth and accomplishments. But the effort is actually pushing you away from God. You can't earn your way to heaven. So growing in my Christian journey, I've looked at this concept a lot of times and I've thought to myself, Am I relying more on Sean and less on Jesus? When actually on that scale in life, I don't want to be balanced out where there's enough of Sean and enough of Jesus. I actually want to be on that scale where it flips up and I'm down here near Jesus. Can you guys picture that with me? It's not about it being even. My works, what Jesus has done, it's even. It's actually about giving up my works and moving it down here because it's about Jesus' actions. It's about what Jesus has done for me. It's about what Jesus has done for humanity. Because when that day comes when we don't have to be on this earth no more. As it says in Revelation, there's no more pain and death and suffering. All those things are old concepts. That's going to be a good day. When we actually put it on the scale, and it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done. I want to assure you, I want to assure you but it's at that point that in our lives, we will know that we're truly saved. At this point, where it's all about me, it's full of doubt. Something goes wrong and you're just like, I'm just going to give up. But when it's all about Jesus, you can be assured in your salvation. I'd like to pray for each of you this morning. Uh, thank you for listening to the ramblings of Pastor Sean. But it's been something that I think about constantly. What must I do to be saved? What do I need for eternal life? Less of me. And... Dear Jesus, we want to thank you uh, for the challenges that you gave Nicodemus and the Good Samaritan. Uh, we want to thank you that there are snippets in the Old Testament, we just briefly skip through some verses. And the, New T- and the New Testament that talk about this whole idea of salvation. Uh, it, it is a big, long word, but it's super-duper important because we, too, want to know what, where our hope is, is based. And we, too, need to learn, like Nicodemus and the rich young man, we need to find out the truth. And in your son, Jesus, in the biblical account of what salvation is... It's not about me, it's not about my works, it's about what you've done for us. I know that when we accept you into our life, our actions will always just demonstrate and reflect who you are. But those actions are a natural reaction, they're organic, because we love you because we acknowledge what you have done for us is incredible and what future you have for us is unbelievable. Lord, today I pray for our community here, I pray for our community outside of our school grounds and I thank you that we could spend some time looking at this really important subject of what must I do to have eternal life. Thank you for being our God. We all said...